Tonight our passage is Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 28 that Charlie just read for us just a minute ago. To bow our heads and ask God to bless us as we study His Word. Father, we're thankful for the opportunity once again to come tonight to this place where it is safe to worship You, where we find ourselves gathered with brothers and sisters, friends and family. And we have come together, Father, to focus in this next hour on Your presence in this world and especially in our lives. And what we, we choose to do, Father, because we are Your disciples, is to worship You. To declare that You are the supreme value of the universe. To declare, Father, that You are the supreme value of our lives. And to declare, Father, with all of our strength and with all of our, our soul and heart and mind that You are our God, that we trust You, and that we acknowledge, Father, not only our sin, but it is Your grace that, that makes us saved and forgiven and adopted and justified in Your sight. And tonight as we study, Father, we want to, to study in such a way and to learn in such a way that we are transformed in our, our person. We seek to be truer disciples and followers, Father, of the kind of people that you have called us to be in this community and in this life, to be salt and to be light and to live our lives in an authentic and genuine way, Father, that it makes a difference in the world around us, in the community around us. And it all begins, Father, with our understanding of who Jesus is. And so tonight as we study this great passage, this, this great story out of Matthew's Gospel, we pray that you give us eyes that see and ears that hear. And we ask it, Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen. This morning we considered how to handle a storm in life that, that's out there. And tonight what we want to do is we want to consider how to handle a storm that's on the inside of us. And to do that, we want to look at a story in the Gospel of Matthew that involves evil and demons, in fact, uh, a lot of demons. And this is one of five stories involving what we would call an exorcism in, in our English language or popular culture or casting out of demons. Now, what we saw this morning is that Jesus and his disciples had been out on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. After Jesus finishes his teaching, he goes and uh, tells his disciples that they're going to the other side. And this really is not one of the most popular things that Jesus has ever asked them to do. The other side, that is the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, is where the Decapolis is found. It is the land of the Gentiles. It is a land that is filled up with Romans. It is the land that is considered inhabited by unclean people. And in their Jewish way of thinking, it is where you find the un in, in the land of the unclean, it's where you find evils and demons. But in order to get there, they have to travel straight across the Sea of Galilee. And that wasn't very cool in their, their worldview either. All traditional Jewish folk believed that evil resided in the deep waters and that the rabbis were, were uh, a part of that. They taught that demons were to be encountered where there were lots of water, especially deep water. And as they're traveling across the Sea of Galilee, all of a sudden, wouldn't you know it, while they're out there in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, there's this terrible hurricane-level storm that Matthew calls a mega seismos. It is a tremendous shaking of the boat and the water and the waves and the wind, and it blows up uh, 
suddenly and nearly submerges and subdues them. And again, you know, the sea is this destructive power, and it becomes, and it's uncontrollable except at the word of Jesus. And he calms the storm, and they wonder to themselves at the end of that story. In fact, they ask the question, what kind of man is this? In Mark's gospel, in his, his account of it, they're asking, who is this that is able to calm the seas and, and the wind? And now they get to the other side, and when you know it, their other big fear comes true. They encounter demons. In Matthew's gospel, there are two demon-possessed men that come out to meet them and tell them exactly who Jesus is. And this is an encounter between Jesus and evil. And I want us to think about it from three different angles. Now, I'm going to, let me tell you first what I'm not going to do tonight. Uh, in Matthew's gospel, there are two men. In Mark's gospel, there is one. We're not going to deal with, with any of those issues. And we're really not going to deal with any of the, the, the issues of demon possession today. Uh, I'll, I'll just give you about 10 seconds. If you're a believer, you don't have to worry about demon possession. I don't believe that a demon has any chance of possessing a believer who's, who has been baptized and received the gift of the Holy Spirit. But I do believe in demon influence in the world today. And we'll kind of get into that a little bit more tonight. But first... First thing that's considered in understanding or dealing with evil as this story helps us to understand it is that the Bible has a complex view of evil rather than a simplistic one. When you read this story, you are struck that the Bible teaches that there are demons here. There are demons. Now, a lot of modern people scoff at the idea of there being demons in the world. It's illogical. It's primitive to think about demons in this day and age. It's, not, it's, it's, it's very unscientific until they see a movie like The Exorcist or they see uh, uh, some other kind of a movie like The Exorcist and then everyone, regardless of how modern and scientific they are, they, they sort of become believers to a, to a small degree. It's like atheists in foxholes. Modern people see a movie with demons, whether it's The Exorcist or, or the, the, uh, the Omen series or any of the other contemporary movies, which, which you know I've not seen, and it's sort of like everybody becomes a believer, at least in demons at that point. And what is revealed is sort of a primal fear of the evil supernatural. The core issue is really what the Bible teaches or what most, uh, uh, you know, what most modern people think that the Bible teaches in, in terms of, of, of evil. The reality is that the Bible is, is very nuanced in the way that it addresses the idea of evil and illness and sickness. In fact, I think it's one of the most realistic views in the world. Think back at another passage you have already looked at in your study on Sunday morning in Matthew. Matthew chapter 4, verse 24 says, News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were what? Ill with various what? Diseases. Those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, which, by the way, in the old King James, if some of you had the old King James, it's the word uh, uh, they brought to him, lunatics, or those that were suffering from, from lunacy, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Now, you know, the, the idea that the, that the Bible uses demon possession to sort of describe what it doesn't understand is really not accurate. The Bible actually differentiates between demon possession and other illnesses like having seizures. They, they, uh, that they are very wrong or inaccurate 
when they say that the Bible only uses demon possession to talk about things like epilepsy or things that, that, uh, that can't be explained because of you know, the lack of medical science during that period of time and you know, epilepsy or a seizure. That was really, you know, that's just what the Bible was calling demon possession. That's not true. The Bible differentiates between these things. The Bible understands that there are differences between all of these illnesses and demon possession. And if you were to break it down, the Bible would basically see these kinds of ailments in four areas. There would be a physiological illness, and, uh, you know, people would get sick, people would become ill. You remember Paul telling uh, Timothy to take a little wine for his stomach. There was the anointing of oil, which was sort of a, you know, there, there were ways in which the anointing of oil uh, uh, consecrated a person. There was also, uh, an, the, you know, the idea of anointing with oil that had to do with medicinal purposes. So there was sort of this physiological recognition that, that people get sick. There was also moral um, illness in the sense of, uh, you, you know, there was guilt and there was shame and people felt terrible about what it was that they had, had, had done that was contrary to God's will or if they were not really in tune with God's will, they were upset about maybe how they had hurt somebody else and the remedy was you confess your sins and there's forgiveness and there's grace. And then there was, you know, what we might uh, uh, deal or, or term today with with as a mental issue or mental um, uh, a mental struggle where people would become depressed and the Bible would talk about the need uh, you know Elijah for instance needing to to go off by himself led by God to a, to a place where he could get rest and even angels ministering to him with with angel food to, to help make that journey to a place where he could deal with with his blue mood and and there was the need for encouragement the Bible talks about love and support and the need for community. And then the Bible talks about evil. Evil and the source of it being an evil indiv individual, a, a personality, a, the, the devil, Satan. And, you know, it talks about the, the prayer and the Word of God as, as being, you know, as, as being part of the remedy for uh, much of the evil that, that, that people encounter in the world. The Bible is, is very much more nuanced in its understanding than it's giving credit. Now, the Bible doesn't reduce our struggles to certain planes and say, you know, that's, you know, that's where you have to deal with it in sort of a default, default mode. As, for example, you know, all you got to do is take a pill or lie on the couch or get a better education or, or blame your parents or find a better and more equitable distribution of good. Now, s some of that may, may be an answer in part, but it doesn't explain the existence of what the Bible calls evil. Matt Woodley, one of the, the, the commentary writers on, on Matthew, he writes about encountering a man in his 70s who tried to shoo him away saying, you know, it's so nice to see you. Thanks for stopping by, but you really should talk to my wife because she believes in God and I don't. And Woodley, because he's a minister, asks, you know, okay, really? You know, tell me why you don't believe in God. And this 70-year-old man who's an army vet says, okay, it's a very specific, quick story. I was serving in the Army, the United States Army, stationed in Korea when I came upon a site that scarred me for life. A squad of North Korean soldiers had ambushed a busload of civilians. They torched everything inside the bus, old men, young women, children, even infants in their mother's arms. And he says, I'll never forget the sight of charcoal babies and the stench of burnt human flesh. And something died in my heart on that day. God died, and faith died, and hope died. And the memory still haunts me. 
What this army vet had encountered was an inexplicable example of evil. It's the same sort of thing. Many of you like poetry. You read the poetry of W.H. Auden who lived, you know, beginning of the, the 20th century in, in New York City. He tells in 1939 or 40, somewhere, somewhere at, right at the very beginning of the, uh, the war in Western Europe, World War II, before the United States had gotten involved in it, 39 or 40, he, he's living in a, what is in New York City, a German community, and he goes and sees a movie at a movie house in that, that German community. And what the movie turned out to be was nothing more than a Nazi propaganda film, and it was really given the Nazi spin on the invasion of Poland. And seeing what was going on as people responded, Germans responded to that film, changed his life. Whenever a Polish person appeared on the screen, these German neighbors, people that he knew, some of them friends, would stand up and shake their fist at the screen and scream, kill them. And the sight of that, the experience of that, completely changed him. Auden was so shaken that he lost his faith in atheism. Because he had been an atheist, he had nothing in his worldview that could account for what he was seeing in that movie house. If he did not believe in God as an atheist, that, that, that we are really the product of evolution, then really the strong eating the weak is natural. And there was no way that he could, he could uh, you know, he could... He could renounce what it was that he was seeing in that theater as these German-Americans were standing up and screaming, kill the, the Poles, every time they showed up on the screen. He had no basis as an atheist for saying to the Nazi, you cannot do what you're doing. And Auden saw that if he did not have a worldview that included God and included what the Bible says about evil, then he could not explain how what, appeared to <coughs> how what appeared to be very good people, what even appeared to be moral people most of the time, how they were getting sucked into Nazism. You see, the Bible teaches that you cannot attribute all the bad things that happen in this world to bad choice and bad education and bad economies. The Bible teaches that there is such a thing as evil, that there is such a person as Satan, that there are these these creatures as demons. You know, even getting into the writings of Paul, Paul writes in, in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, he says, As the Lord's servant, you know, you must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful, not bitter. Those who oppose him he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of whom? The devil, who has taken them captive to do his will. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 26, In your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give what? The devil a foothold. The Bible is not simplistic in its view of what's happening in the world, but actually has a very complex view that includes that these things that are happening in the world that are many times inexplicable really the result of evil, the presence, the reality of evil in the universe. But this story also reminds us that there is a pattern to evil. When we read this text, and we, we, you know, we, we see in our English versions demon possession, in a way it sort of gives us this false sense of security. We think, you know, I've never seen a demon-possessed person do I? 
you know, I don't know of any. These poor people. You know, in the original language, it's not that these two men were demon-possessed. In the original language, it is literally they were demonized. Now, now connect that with what Paul has said. If you are proud or self-centered or angry or bitter or, re- or resentful, then you make yourself open to de- demonic influences that are bent on disintegrating what it is that God has blessed, like relationships or community or generosity, or any number of things. And these men, according to Matthew, have become so violent that nobody can get near them, and they live out there in the tombs. And in Mark's account, he has you know, just the one man, but he has, he has become so violent and he is so strong that no one is able to bind him, keyword, anymore. Anymore. What has happened is that these two men in Matthew have become so enslaved to sin that there is this multitude of demons inside of them and and there is this pattern of evil. You get separated from God and and through time and through these influences you begin to become enslaved. And, And this is where I think this pattern really hits home for us. You make something more important than God, your looks or your career, for example, and you become enslaved. There was a book written back in the 1980s by Becky Pepper, and it was really a book about evangelism called Out of the Salt Shaker. But she writes in that book that a person who seeks power is a person that's going to be controlled by power. A person that is seeking acceptance is going to be controlled by the people they are seeking to please. Now, now, now think about how this happens, how this, this evil influence, how this, this leads to in, in enslavement, a pattern of enslavement with something as simple as career. It becomes the main thing in your life. And it's how you know you're special. And it's what gives you meaning. It's what, what gives you significance. It's the very thing that makes you happy. Now, on the one hand, you're going to think that you're very blessed because you're so driven that you're going to probably be much more successful than those that are not as driven as much as you are. That the job is important to other people, but to you, it's everything. And what happens is that you become a slave to it. And there are times when you become enslaved to something like a career that you do things that in other times, in normal times, in, in more rational times, you wouldn't ever think about doing. Like exploiting or trampling over other people in order to climb up that ladder. You're, you know, you know the core, to, at, at the core of narcissism is the desire to destroy other people in order to lift yourself up. Now again, without getting into... Um, you know, until I, again, all of, all of the arguments to and from. You know, it, it, one very famous writer in the area of psychology says that narcissism is at the core of what is evil in the world. You exploit and you trample other people. It becomes a real possibility for you to cut corners. And physically, after a while, the career drives you into the ground. And you have put career over marriage and family and friends and over everything. And in the end, you've realized that you've squandered all of these opportunities. Now, how does that happen? Gradually. That's the pattern. It starts off as something that looks good, and then over time, it's the thing that enslaves you. In Mark's Gospel, it was said that no one could bind this demon-possessed man any more. That gradually he had gotten to the point where his life was so out of control because of the demons that were inside of him that he could no longer be, be, be bound. 
But then now where we get to the, I think, the positive side of the story is that the evil is defeated by Jesus. So what do you do? You do what the two possessed men do. You, you recognize that evil is, is the problem. These particular guys, it's the demons. You come out of the tombs and you meet Jesus. These two men knew that their problem was not the Romans. They, in the eyes of, of you know, these two men knew that the problem was not the Romans in the way that, that a lot of the Jewish people at that time, you know, all the Messiah has to do is get the Romans out of Israel and we're going to be saved. The evil is going to be purged out of Israel, not realizing that the evil was inside of them. In the eyes of the Jews, it was the Romans who were the unclean pigs. They were the problem. And the Messiah, all he had to do was get the Romans out. Everything's going to be okay. Drive the Romans into the sea and we're going to be okay. But in this story, Jesus tells these demons to go. And that they do. And again, it's the same as in the story this morning. Jesus doesn't have to conjure up a higher power. He doesn't have to appeal to a higher power. He is that higher power. And He brings healing to these two men. Now, what do you do with the pigs? To a lot of people who read the story, the, the pigs are the weird part of the story. What's the deal with the pigs? Well, in the, the region of the Gadarenes where this takes place, and, and again, you know, there's some, some, some debate as to where this is, this is really taking place on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. But in the region of the Gadarenes, these pigs, this, this gigantic herd of pigs represents a lot of money. And, and maybe one of the points of the story is that all the wealth in the world is not worth a human soul in the eyes of Jesus the Creator. And you have these, these two men who are living in the tombs, and in Mark's Gospel, the way that he describes their life is that they are naked and they are bleeding and they are the ones that are crying out. And when we get to the end of the Gospels, it's Jesus that has sort of switched places with them. He is the one that is stripped of his clothing. And He is the one who is bleeding. And He is the one who is crying out, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? And it is He that is literally taken into a tomb in order for us to be put in our right mind and to be put in our right place as a child of God by adoption and salvation. And one of the great things about this story is that is that, again, the disciples are given another reason to follow Jesus. This morning it was, you know, there are these storms of life that we enter into, and these storms sometimes seem so uncontrollable, and they seem so bent on destroying our life. And at times, any of us who have tried to live a life of faith, that we go into, we go into the world and we go into the, the, the days of our life and we encounter these kinds of storms, and it seems like we're going to sink, and what, what we think of God is that maybe He's... He's unaware because he's sleeping. And the point of that story this morning is that God in Christ has that power to overcome, a greater power, enabled to overcome the destructive power of, of any storm that you're going to face in this life. The next story dealing with these two demon-possessed men is that Jesus has the power to bring rightness of mind and to bring that kind of healing into your life as well on the inside on the inside, to make you a whole person and to make you wholesome in your thinking and to make you sanctified in your thinking and to help you to understand the truth about the world and your relationship with God and the character of God and all of these things. 
And He does it by dealing with the evil inside of you, by dying on the cross to save you from those sins and to save you from, from, from those acts that are so outside of the, the will of God that they are, they are capable of damning you to hell for all of eternity. And He does it by taking all of that upon Himself and making us His righteousness in order for us to be adopted by God and to come into God's embrace and to come into God's kingdom and to come in forever into God's heaven. Jeff's going to lead us in a song. And we'll have shepherds down here at the front. And if there are ways that our church can minister to you tonight, perhaps you're dealing with some things on the inside that you need the support and the encouragement of the church, or maybe you're dealing with something on the inside that you need the church praying for you, asking God to bless you and to change your life and, and to make you a deeper and a greater disciple and, and a, an authentic and genuine light for the kingdom of God. If that's the case, come down and meet these shepherds as Jeff leads us in this song. Let's stand and sing together.